You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride is TJ. Oh, hey. Anyway, I got off the boat, and uh, of course, it's a Disney cruise, so there are 8,000 children on the cruise, and that's why I have like the phone operator voice right now. Yeah, you have so. a funky voice. I didn't <laughs> notice it till we turned the microphone on. Yeah. It's like, oh, wait. <laughs> so you guys aren't going to hear a whole lot from me. But that's okay, because we have a ton of story to get through. Yeah, so why don't we just jump right in with Janis Joplin Part 2. Yeah. So where we left off uh, was the end of 1969. She's done Woodstock. She's on a downward spiral with the heroin addiction. Her second band has said, peace out. So that's where we are. We're going to just, where we pick up now is in 1970, which seems like it shouldn't be a lot because it it is the final year of her life, but she packed a lot in that last year. Yeah, I had this crazy idea that she died in 1969. No, 1970. She was at Woodstock in 1969. Yeah, I know. But like, for some reason, I feel like that was like the year of like so much stuff happening that she had to die within that. So... I don't know no. why, but yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, if you look back from when her career started to when she passed away, she had a very short career, but there was so much packed in there. I mean, obviously, if you've gone and listened to part one, you already have heard all of that. And it is. It's it's just kind of a whirlwind for her from when she starts with Big, Bro- Big Brother and the Holding Company through the end of her life. I mean, she was with three bands in like four years three four years it's crazy she's like the dennis wilson of bands yeah (laughs) in february 1970 joplin traveled to brazil where she stopped her drug and alcohol use which woohoo yeah she was accompanied on vacation there by her friend linda gravenites who had designed the singer's stage costumes from 1967 to 1969 In Brazil, Joplin was romanced by a fellow American tourist. His name is David Niehaus, but in parentheses, there's George, so maybe he went by his middle name? Maybe? I don't know. Anyways, she was romanced by Mr. Niehaus, who was traveling around the world. One Joplin biography written by her sister, Laura, said... David was an upper-middle-class Cincinnati kid who had studied communications at Notre Dame. Notre Dame? Notre Dame. Who had studied communications at Notre Dame. Yeah, it's Notre Dame because Notre Dame is Notre Dame is the cathedral. cathedral. Notre Dame is the college. Right. Right. You learn something every day on this podcast, folks. All right. (laughs) Which, how much did you love, Andrea, calling you out for not knowing... That Janis Joplin had dated Chris Christopherson. I I didn't see it because I didn't get the notifications because I've been in American Idol land. So it just came up today. I have not checked Instagram today. (laughs) Well, she did. (laughs) Thank you, Andrea. She called you out specifically. (laughs) 
Really? She called me out for not knowing that she dated Chris Christopherson, but she didn't call me out for not knowing that Monterey was in California. Because I'm pretty sure maybe I she hadn't in. gotten to that part because <laughs> the Chris Christopherson part was early. But she does have, and we love you for this, honey. She has this way of live messaging, like live commenting on the Instagram posts when she's listening. Do and we absolutely I, love it. It's great. I love it so much. <laughs> so we know exactly where she is in the episodes. <laughs> hey, if you're ever in California, maybe you should just come and be a guest on the show. That'd be fun. Yeah, be please fun do. Yeah. Let us know. That'd be a fun time. So as we learned, he studied communications at Notre Dame, kids, and had joined the Peace Corps after college and worked in a small village in Turkey. He tried law school, but when he met Janice, he was taking time off. Niehaus and Joplin were photographed by the press at Rio Carnival in Rio de Janeiro. Gravenites also took color photographs of the two during their Brazilian vacation. According to Joplin biographer Ellis Amburn, in Gravenites' snapshots, they, quote, look like a carefree, happy, healthy young couple having a tremendously good time. So kind of a positive influence. And this is like a positive time in her life. Rolling Stone magazine interviewed Joplin during an international phone call, quoting her, I'm going into the jungle with a big bear of a beatnik named David Niehaus. I finally remembered I don't have to be on stage 12 months a year. I've decided to go and dig some other jungles for a couple of weeks. I like how she refers to the stage and all of that as a jungle. Amburn added in 1992, quote, Janice was trying to kick heroin in Brazil, and one of the nicest things about David was that he wasn't into drugs. Yay. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's something she desperately needed. Unfortunately, when Joplin returned to the U.S., she began using heroin again. So this is exactly the thing. Like, you can't just remove yourself for a couple of weeks and be like, cool, I'm clean now, and then come back into all that again. It's really hard to stay with that. And we see that all the time with not just Joplin, but many other musicians, too, and anybody, really. Her relationship with Niehaus soon ended because he witnessed her shooting drugs in her new home in Larkspur, California. Their relationship was also complicated by her ongoing romantic relationship with Peggy with Peggy Caserta, who also was an intravenous drug user, and Joplin's refusal to take time off and travel the world with him, which you'll remember Peggy Caserta from the first part of the story as well, and she continues on through the rest of this as well. She's got this on and off thing, and David's like, all right, this is too much. Like, you're back on the drugs, you're still with off and on with this lady, you won't take time off and keep traveling with me. I'm out. I want to sidestep for a second because that's what we do. That wrist tattoo that she has, that iconic wrist tattoo, this was inked by the legendary Lyle Tuttle in his 7th Street shop in San Francisco in April of 1970. So it was right about the time that she got back from, Bra from Brazil before she starts up her new band in May. The symbol is actually a Florentine bracelet that was hand-drawn by Joplin and stands for the liberation of women. While she also has a small heart tattoo on her left breast, she once said, the one on my wrist is for everybody. The one on my tit is for me and my friends. Adding, just a little treat for the boys, like icing on the cake. <laughs> so, like I said, around, so around this same time, she's back in San Francisco 
she forms her new band, the Full Tilt Boogie Band. The band was comprised mostly of young Canadian musicians previously associated with Ronnie Hawkins and featured an organ, but no horn section. Remember Cosmic Blues Band, she wanted that horn sound to... Remember with Cosmic Blues Band, she kind of wanted that horn section so that it was similar to like what Chicago was doing. This does not have horns, but it does have an organ. Because it's the 70s. Well, what I think was really interesting, too, is that with each band, she kind of changes it up a little bit of what she's trying to do. So Joplin took more of an active role in putting together the Full Tilt Boogie Band than she did with her prior group, Cosmic Blues. And remember, Big Brother and the Holding Company was established before she stepped in to sing with them. And she's quoted as saying, it's my band. It's finally my band. The Full Tilt Boogie Band began touring in May of 1970. Joplin remained quite happy with her new group, which received mostly positive feedback from both her fans and the critics. Prior to beginning a summer tour with Full Tilt Boogie, she performed in a reunion with Big Brother at the Fillmore West in San Francisco on April 4th, 1970. Recordings from this concert were included in an in-concert album released posthumously in 1972. She again appeared with Big Brother on April 12th at Winterland. Is that the Winterland Ballroom? Yes. And that's in New York, right? Yes. Okay. Yay, I'm proud of myself. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so she appeared with them again April 12th at Winterland, where she and Big Brother were reported to be in excellent form. Around this time, Joplin began wearing multicolored feather boas in her hair, which I enjoyed that part, that, that moment in her look. By the time she began touring with Full Tilt Boogie, Joplin told people she was drug-free, but her drinking had increased. From June 28th to July 4th, 1970, Joplin and Full Tilt Boogie Band joined the All-Star Festival Express Tour throughout Canada, performing alongside Buddy Guy, the band, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Ten Years After, Grateful Dead, Delaney and Bonnie, Eric Anderson, and Ian and Sylvia, which I think this is the one that you thought was the Monterey Festival, was Festival Express. Festival Express, they played concerts in Toronto, Winnipeg, and Calgary. Instead of flying to each city, the musicians traveled by chartered train in a total of 14 cars, which I feel like this would have been the coolest thing to be part of. The journey between cities ultimately became a combination of nonstop jam sessions and partying fueled by alcohol. Joplin's performances on this tour are considered to be among her greatest, which as a side note, a documentary was recorded during the tour entitled Festival Express, and was released in 2003. One highlight from the film was one of these drunken jam sessions featuring the bands Rick Danko, Grateful Dead's Jerry Garcia, and Bob Weir, New Riders of the Purple Sages' John Dawson, and of course, Janis Joplin. Joplin headlined the festival on all three nights. At the last stop in Calgary, she took to to the stage with Jerry Garcia, while her band was tuning up. Film footage shows her telling the audience how great the tour was 
and she and Garcia presenting the organizers with the case of tequila. She then burst into a two-hour set, starting with Tell Mama. Throughout this performance, Joplin engaged in several banters about her love life. In one, she reminisced about living in a San Francisco apartment and competing with a female neighbor and flirting with men on the street. She finished the Calgary concert with long versions of Get It While You Can and Ball and Chain, which again, so cool. Footage of her performance of Tell Mama in Calgary, Canada, became an MTV video in the early 1980s, and the audio from the same film footage was included on the Farewell Song 1982 album comprised of nine previously unreleased recordings. The audio of other Festival Express performances was included on Joplin's In Concert 1972 album. Video of the performances was also included on the Festival Express DVD. These performances of entire songs during the Festival Express concerts in Toronto and Calgary can be purchased, although other songs remain in vaults and have yet to be released. In the Tell Mama video shown on MTV in the 80s, Joplin wore a psycho... I have to include the fashion stuff for LD. She... Joplin... I do love the fashion stuff. I know. I really do. So then if you go back and watch this video, you'll see what she wore during... The Calgary show. Maybe I Festival will. Express. Maybe we should just do a short set and I'll eat it because I know it's not really a thing, but like iconic fashions. I like fashion. Not as much as you, though. That's true. Anyways, if you want to see it, she wore a psychedelically colored, loose fitting costume and feathers in her hair. This was her standard stage costume in the spring and summer of 1970. She chose the new costumes after her friend and designer, Linda Gravenites, whom Joplin had praised in Vogue's profile of her in its May 1968 edition, cut ties with Joplin shortly after their return from Brazil, due largely to Joplin's continued use of heroin. So not only did she lose David Niehaus after Brazil, she also lost her friend Linda and costume designer. During the Festival Express tour, Joplin was accompanied by Rolling Stone writer David Dalton, who later wrote several articles and two books on Joplin. She told Dalton, quote, I'm a victim of my own insides. There was a time when I wanted to know everything. It used to make me very unhappy, all that feeling. I just didn't know what to do with it. But now I've learned to make that feeling work for me. I'm full of emotion and I want to release. And if you're on stage... And if it's really working and you've got the audience with you, it's a oneness you feel. And I love this quote from her. It resonates a lot with my own feelings on that situation. Like, love that quote from her. On July 11, 1970, Full Tilt Boogie and Big Brother and the Holding Company both performed at the same concert in the San Diego Sports Arena, which was decades later renamed the Valley View Casino Center. So if you're wondering... That's where they were. And it's still around? I'm assuming, yeah. Hmm. Since they made a point to tell me that the name had changed. Joplin sang with Full Tilt Boogie and appeared briefly on stage with Big Brother without singing, according to the next day's review in the San Diego Union. But I found a little snippet, which I thought was fun, uh, that I wanted to include here. Apparently, she had a conversation offstage with her f- old friend, Richard Hungen, the Grateful Dead's road manager, in which she said, I hear a rumor that somebody in San Francisco is spreading stories that I'm a dyke. 
you go back there and find out who it is and tell them that Janice says she's gotten it on with a couple of thousand cats in her life and a few hundred chicks and see what they can do with that. I want to take a moment and talk about Bessie Smith. And you might say, well, TJ, we're talking about Janice Chaplin. Why would you do this to us? Why would you take such another big sidestep? Well, it plays. Follow my train of thought here, kids. Bessie Smith was a huge, huge, huge influence on Janice Joplin. And she was the most popular blues singer from the 1920s and 30s. There was an HBO biopic made about her starring Queen Latifah, which was pretty cool. I, I saw it. It was pretty good. So on August 7th, 1970, a tombstone for Bessie Smith was jointly paid for by Joplin and Juanita Green, who as a child had done housework for Smith. It was erected at Smith's previously unmarked grave. The following day, the Associated Press circulated this news, and the August 9th edition of the New York Times carried it. The lead paragraph of the AP story said Joplin and Greed had, quote, shared the cost of a stone for the Empress of Blues. But according to publicist slash biographer Myra Friedman, the two women never met. Joplin had been at home in Larkspur, California, when she had received a long-distance phone call with an explanation of the need to finance a gravestone for Bessie Smith, whom Joplin had frequently cited as a musical influence. Joplin immediately wrote a check and mailed it to the name and address provided by the phone caller. As the Associated Press circulated the news about Smith's new gravestone, Joplin performed at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York. It was there that she first performed Mercedes-Benz a song partially inspired by a Michael McClure poem that she had written that day in the bar next door to the Capitol Theater with fellow musician and friend Bob Newworth. According to Myra Freeman's account, Joplin performed two shows at the Capitol Theater, the first of which was attended by actors Geraldine Page and her husband Rip Torn, and it was during subsequent free time at a gin mill very close to this concert venue that Joplin and Newworth penned the lyrics to the song and she performed it at the second show. So basically they wrote it in between concerts and she performed it right away at the second show. Joplin's last per- public performance with the Full Tilt Boogie Band took place on August 12th, 1970 at the Harvard Stadium in Boston. The Harvard Crimson newspaper gave the performance a positive front-page review, despite the fact that Full Tilt Boogie had performed with makeshift amplifiers after their regular sound equipment was stolen in Boston. And since we've been taking little side journeys in this final chapter, I'm going to jump backward again for a quick second, because it lines up better in the story. Among Joplin's last public appearances were two broadcasts of the Dick Cavett show. In her June 25th, 1970 appearance, she announced that she would attend her 10-year high school class reunion. When asked if she had been popular in school, she admitted that when in high school, her schoolmates, quote, laughed me out of class, out of town, and out of the state. In fact, during the year that she had spent at the University of Texas at Austin, Joplin had been voted ugliest man on campus by a bunch of frat boys. In her last public appearance anywhere, Joplin attended said high school reunion on August 14th, accompanied by Bob Newworth, road manager John Cook, and her sister Laura, but it was reportedly an unhappy experience for her. 
She showed up wearing flowing blue and pink feathers in her hair, purple and white satin and velvet with gold embroidery, sandals and painted toenails, and rings and bracelets enough for a, quote, Babylonian whore. Port Arthur had never seen the likes of her. I feel like that's like a phrase that isn't used enough. It's not used much anymore. That's for sure. I feel like I heard it a lot when I was younger. Yeah, it's kind of like calling somebody Jezebel. But it's also why I decided to quote it because I don't know how PC that would be anymore. But it was as written. So Joplin held a press conference in Port Arthur during her reunion visit. When asked by a reporter if she ever entertained at Thomas Jefferson High School when she was a student there, Joplin replied, only when I walked down the aisles. Joplin denigrated Port Arthur and the classmates who had humiliated her a decade earlier. Janice and Entourage swept into the Goodhue Hotel's drab petroleum room and commandeered the bar. When she asked for vodka, she'd switched to gin and vodka from Southern Comfort about a year previous, the bartender said he had nothing but bourbon and scotch. God, she said, somebody go out and get a bottle of vodka. During late August, September, and early October 1970, Joplin and her band rehearsed and recorded a new album in Los Angeles with producer Paul A. Rothschild, best known for his lengthy relationship with The Doors. Although Joplin died before all the tracks were fully completed, there was enough usable material to compile an LP. So now, I'm going to talk a little bit about them Pearl recordings. Joplin checked into the Landmark Motor Hotel in Hollywood on August 24, 1970, near Sunset Sound Recorders, where she began rehearsing and recording her album. The Landmark was a favorite motel for visiting performers, due in part for its proximity to the offices of record companies and music publishers, and partly for its, quote, tolerance of parties and drug use. So basically a no-tell motel. Like, party here, do drugs, drink have affairs whatever like is we there, don't judge you is there a will tell motel like yeah when you check in and they like scan your id and give you a drug test and like find out the relationship of the person that you're checking in with like <laughs> i want to know if there's a difference. there are some like back <laughs> then and previously yes huh i don't know i mean just as shady. It's more shady. It's more sketchy. Like, eh. If you're going to tattle and be square about parties, more often they'd ask you to leave than for the people causing the commotion kind of a place, you know? Actually, I have a story about that. A front desk clerk remembered laughing the time a guest called to complain about the noise from a series of rooms where members of the Jefferson Airplane were having a party. To quote... The guy who complained was thrown out, he said, and it was Janice's kind of place. So, yeah, you'd be more likely to get thrown out if you complained about a party than the person actually having the party. Well, probably because the person having the party is throwing down some mad cash. I don't know. Apparently that was just the vibe of the place. It was seedy and they liked it that way. During the sessions, Joplin continued a relationship with Seth Morgan a 21-year-old UC Berkeley student, cocaine dealer, and future novelist who had visited her new home in Larkspur in July and August. She and Morgan were engaged to be married in early September, 
even though he visited Sunset Sound Recorders for just eight of Joplin's many rehearsals and sessions. So I get the feeling he spent most of his time up in Larkspur in San Francisco. Morgan later told biographer Myra Friedman that as a non-musician, he had felt excluded whenever he had visited Sunset Sound Recorders. Instead, he stayed at Joplin's... That's exactly what I'm saying. Instead, he stayed at Joplin's Larkspur home while she stayed alone at the Landmark, although several times she visited Larkspur to be with him and to check the progress of renovation she was having done on the home. Which, just as a fun fact, according to biographer Ellis Ambern, she told her construction crew to design a carport to be shaped like a flying saucer, the concrete foundation for which was poured the day before she died. Man, I would have loved to have seen that. That would have been cool. That would have been cool. Peggy Caserta claimed in her book, Going Down with Janice, that she and Joplin had decided mutually in April 1970 to stay away from each other to avoid enabling each other's drug use. Caserta, a former Delta Airlines stewardess and owner of one of the first clothing boutiques in the Haight-Ashbury, said that by September 1970, Caserta was smuggling cannabis throughout California and had checked into the Landmark Motor Hotel because it attracted drug users. So guess who's back in Janice's life? For approximately the first two weeks of Joplin's stay at the Landmark, she did not know Caserta was in Los Angeles. Joplin learned of Caserta's presence at the Landmark from a heroin dealer who made deliveries there. Joplin begged Caserta for heroin, and when Caserta refused to provide it, Joplin reportedly admonished her by saying, Don't think if you can get it, I can't get it. Joplin's publicist, Myra Friedman, was unaware during Joplin's lifetime that this had happened. Later, while Friedman was working on her book, Buried Alive, she determined that the time frame of the Joplin-Caserta encounter was one week before Jimi Hendrix's death. Within a few days, Joplin became a regular customer of the same heroin dealer who had been supplying Caserta. Joplin's manager, Albert Grossman, and Friedman had staged an intervention with Joplin the previous winter while Joplin was in New York. In September 1970, Grossman and Friedman, who had worked out of a New York office, knew Joplin was staying at a Los Angeles hotel, but were unaware it was a haven for drug users and dealers. Grossman and Friedman knew during Joplin's lifetime that her friend Caserta, whom Friedman met during the New York sessions for cheap thrills, and on later occasions, used heroin. During the many long-distance telephone conversations that Joplin and Friedman had in September 1970, and on October 1st, Joplin never mentioned Caserta, and Friedman assumed Caserta had been out of Joplin's life for a while. Friedman, who had more time than Grossman to monitor the situation, never visited California. She thought Joplin sounded on the phone like she was less depressed than she had been over the summer. When Joplin was not at Sunset Sound Recorder, she liked to drive her Porsche over the speed limit on the winding part of Sunset Boulevard, according to a statement made by her attorney Robert Gordon in 1995 at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Friedman wrote, that the only full-tilt boogie member who rode as her passenger, Ken Pearson, often hesitated to join her, though he did on the night she died. He was not interested in experimenting with hard drugs. On September 26, 1970, Joplin recorded vocals for Half Moon and Cry Baby. Then full-tilt boogie recorded the instrumental track for Buried Alive in the Blues. The session ended with Joplin, organist Ken Pearson, and drummer Clark Pearson, spelled differently, just FYI, no relation, <laughs> making a special one-minute recording as a birthday gift to John Lennon. 
Joplin was among several singers who had been contracted by Yoko Ono with the request for a taped greeting for Lennon's 30th birthday on October 9th. Joplin, Pearson, and Pearson chose the Dale Evans composition, Happy Trails, as part of the greeting. Lennon told Dick Cavett on camera the following year that Joplin's recorded birthday wishes arrived at his home after her death. That would suck, if you're like, especially if you're a friend of hers. Like, close friend dies, and then a few days later, you get her singing you happy birthday. Mm. That would suck. Especially knowing that's like one of her last recordings. Ugh. The last recording Joplin completed was on October 1st, 1970, Mercedes-Benz. Which, if you've heard, I mean, you can hear it. The music, there isn't really music in it. It's just her acapella. But her vocal track, she finished the vocal track as her last recording. And it's gorgeous. Oh, it's great. On October 3rd, sorry, on Saturday, October 3rd, Joplin visited Sunset Sound Recorders to listen to the instrumental track for Nick Gravenite's song, Buried Alive in the Blues, which the band had recorded one week earlier. She and Paul Rothschild agreed she would record the, vo- the she and Paul Rothschild agreed she would record the vocal the following day. At some point on Saturday, she learned by telephone to her dismay that Seth Morgan, her then fiance, had met other women at a Marin County restaurant, driven them to her home, and was shooting pool with them using her pool table. People at Sunset Sound Recorders overheard Joplin expressing anger about the state of her relationship with Morgan, as well as joy about the progress of the sessions. Joplin and Ken Pearson later left the studio and went out for drinks at the West Hollywood landmark Barney's Beanery. After midnight, she drove him and a male fan back to the landmark. During the car ride, the fan asked Joplin questions about her singing style, according to the biography by Friedman, and she mostly ignored him so she could converse with Pearson. As Joplin and Pearson prepared to part in the lobby of the landmark, she expressed a fear, possibly in jest, that he and the other full-tilt boogie musicians might decide to stop making music with her. According to Caserta's book, Going Down with Janice, Joplin introduced her to Seth Morgan in Joplin's room at the Landmark Motor Hotel on, on the previous Tuesday evening, September 29th, 1970. My birthday! Well, nine years before. I was going to say, not the year, though. <laughs> Caserta had seen him around San Francisco, but had not met him before. All three of them agreed to reunite three days later on Friday night for a menage a trois in Joplin's room. And for those who don't know what a menage a trois is, it's when you play Parcheesi while watching Jeopardy. Absolutely. You're welcome, Mom. Caserta saw Joplin briefly the next day, Wednesday, again in Joplin's room when Caserta accommodated her new Los Angeles friend, Debbie Nusiforo, age 19, and an aspiring hard rock drummer who wanted to meet Joplin. Debbie was stoned on heroin at the time, and the three women's encounter was brief and unpleasant. Caserta suspected that the reason for Joplin's foul mood was that Morgan had abandoned her earlier that day after having spent less than 24 hours with her. So this is before he hooked up with the Marin Hussies, apparently. That's my new band name. Write that down. The Marin Hussies? Yes. I know. I was like, oh, that's kind of a good name for a band. (laughs) We got some good stuff in here. We got Hussies. We got Jezebel. We got, <laughs> oh, God, what was the other one? 
It was a Babylonian big, Babylonian whore. We got we got a trifecta of awesome. We got it all, man. <laughs> One of the more colorful episodes that we've ever done. Yeah, thank goodness there's going to be the parental warning on this. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> Peggy Caserta and Seth Morgan had both failed to meet Joplin the Friday immediately prior to her death, October 2nd. During the 24 hours Joplin lived after this disappointment, Caserta did not phone her to explain why she had failed to show up. Caserta admitted to waiting until late Saturday night to dial the landmark switchboard, only to learn that Joplin had instructed the desk clerk not to accept any incoming phone calls for her after midnight. Morgan did speak to Joplin via telephone within 24 hours of her death, but it is not known whether he admitted to her that he would not be joining her Friday night before then as planned. Because remember the phone call that he about him having the girls over was within that 24 hour window of when he was supposed to be with her and Caserta and when she passed away. Caserta and Seth Morgan lost touch with each other and each had decided independently to abandon Joplin on Friday night, October 2nd. Caserta learned later from the dealer that Joplin mentioned her disappointment over both of her friends bailing on her to her drug dealer on Saturday while he was selling her the dose of heroin that killed her. So now I've covered everything leading up to her death. Um, Everything that I'm about pretty much, I'd say about, 90% of what I'm about to relay now um, all came from one article. It is the original Rolling Stone article that was printed October 29th, 1970, following her death. After everything had wound down and cause of death was determined, it's not being sensationalized like... I'm actually quite impressed with the level of reporting in this article. Um, it isn't, it's entitled Goodbye Janice Joplin. It can be found on the internet because that's where I found it. And I'm actually really excited because you've been talking about the article. Yeah. It's like in passing and I think on episode one. So mm-hmm. I'm really interested in, in what it has to say. Because yeah. here's the thing, like in the later years, well, in the earlier, in the earlier years, I feel like Rolling Stone was kind of like what you wanted to be in you know like for a rock star yeah. it really meant that you were there and then i think lately they've really kind of fallen off with their journalism especially with the whole tom petty thing and the boston bomber thing like i think yeah. they've, they've had a, a lot of missteps lately so this was actually really yeah i mean this was a great article i was really excited like when i actually looked when I went back to look at the date, I'm like, oh, wait, this is like the original obit article that they put together for her. Um, not everything is included because, you know, there are a lot of like interviews with people that knew her and some other things to kind of set the tone of where they were at when they were putting it together. Um, so there are some other color points to if you go want to go back and look at it i'll include the link in the show notes because i did think it was really good i also did find the original new york times obit from october 4th for her as well online i did not include it um because at that time they were still trying to determine 
cause of death and I felt like there was a little bit more speculation and I had the good information that I wanted to include already. So on Sunday afternoon, October 4th, 1970, producer Paul Rothschild became concerned when Joplin failed to show up at Sunset Sound Recorders for a recording session for which she was scheduled to record the vocal for the instrumental track of the song Buried Alive in the Blues. Around 6 p.m., Rothschild gave in to the strange, quote, flashing he had been feeling all day and sent Full Tilt Boogie's road manager, John Cook, to the Landmark Motor Hotel to see why she wasn't answering her phone. I'd never worried about her before, Rothschild said, although she'd been late lots of times. It was usually that she stopped to buy a pair of pants or some chick thing like that. But October 4th was a Sunday, and there were a few places to go even in Hollywood, even for Janice. Cook arrived around 7 p.m. and saw Joplin psychedelically painted Porsche 356 C Cabriolet in the parking lot and noticed that the drapes in her first floor room were drawn. When Joplin did not answer the door, Cook got the manager, Jack Haggy, to open it. Upon entering Joplin's room, number 105, he found her dead on the floor, wearing a short nightgown wedged between the bed and a nightstand. Her lips were bloody when they turned her over, her nose was broken, and she had $4.50 clutched in one hand. Cook called a doctor, then phoned Janice's attorney, Robert Gordon. Gordon claims he went over the room carefully, but found no narcotics or drug paraphernalia. The police were called, and when they arrived at around 9 p.m., they too found no drugs or works. Quote, that's a quote, the works, drug works, I don't know. But they told reporters Janice had, quote, fresh needle marks on her arm, 10 to 14 of them on her left arm. Jesus. Yeah. That's a lot. That is so much. By the time the 11 p.m. newscaster had finished their, which I'm going to do an LD warning here. Okay. Just, you might get angry. Okay. <laughs> so this is for me. Because I did. <laughs> I actually have a note in here effing press again <laughs> so just hang tight okay i'll try not to get angry by the time the 11 p.m newscaster had finished his brief report phone calls were already spreading wild rumors janice had been killed by some jealous guy by a dealer even by the cia janice had done herself in because of some guy because she thought she was fading because she'd always been self-destructive each new theory had its quote, informed proponents, and each was equally groundless. Effing press. Again. So this was part of the reason why I didn't even really throw myself down the rabbit hole of the New York Times original report. Like, that was a big part of why I didn't include it, because I found it, but I was almost afraid to read it, and then I would just get really, really angry. <laughs> I'm glad that we've been friends long enough where you realize something triggers me and just don't warn me before. Yeah, just before. so you don't, like, freak out in a rage. Because <laughs> this happened before. I cut it out most of the time, but... Oh, yeah. Well, we both do, so I know. <laughs> so, yeah, like I say, wild speculation all over the place. The confusion was not helped by Los Angeles County Coroner Thomas Noguchi's preliminary report issued the following morning. It said she, quote, died of an overdose of drugs, 
but did not specify what drugs, alcohol, sleeping pills, or something harder. Gordon, understandably, her lawyer, tried to counteract many of the bizarre rumors and soften the edge of some of the wilder headlines by saying that he felt that the drug inferences were unfounded and that Janice had died in much the way Jimi Hendrix had from an overdose of sleeping pills followed, in her case, by a fall from the bed. By Tuesday, however, Noguchi reported that Janice, who was 27, had in fact injected heroin into her left arm several hours before she died and that it was an overdose that had killed her. He said an inquest will be held and that, quote, behavioral scientists would try to determine if the OD was intentional. When questioned about the facial injuries, police said they'd ruled out the possibility of violence. She could have broken her nose when she collapsed, one detective said. The odd amount of money in her hand remains a mystery, however, and will feed the imaginations of people who must account in some tangible way for her death. At present, the explanations range from it was changed for a bag, which, remember, a bag of heroin goes for about $15 in Los Angeles in those days, and this is from the article, so I know that it's true, (laughs) to grotesques about change for a call for help, but the phone in her room, as in most motel and hotel rooms, did not require change. So it goes all over the place, really. Which to me, yeah, that part is really weird that she had money in her hand. Unless it was like nearby and she clutched it or something. I don't know. But regardless, there's speculations abound and I really don't need to add to them. <laughs> Reports on Janice's mood in the last weeks of her life did not help much either. They are perhaps appropriately contradictory. Superstars just fade, but cultural heroines die hard. Robert Gordon, the attorney, said Monday that Janice had visited him the previous Thursday, October 1st, on business matters. He's quoted as saying, She seemed very happy. She told me she was thinking of getting married. She'd been going with a guy named Seth Morgan for a couple of months. She was also very happy about her album. She'd been in town about a month recording it, and she was enthusiastic about the band and about her own singing. She said she felt like a woman. The band had a tour scheduled for November. When asked about the business Janice had come to see him about, Gordon said, I might as well tell you, she signed her will. He emphasized, however, that he didn't think the signing meant anything. She was happy, Gordon said. Paul Rothschild, who worked for Electra at the time, was producing the Columbia Sessions independently. He first reported that she was thrilled and ecstatic. He said he'd known Janice for a long time and that she seemed happier and more turned on than anyone can remember. He said the album was 80% done. A source at Columbia, however, reported that the recording had not been going well, that it was coming slowly, and that after a month of eight to ten hour and that after a month of eight to ten hour days in the studio, eleven tracks had been cut and only four were considered good enough. When confronted with this, Rothschild became furious. He pointed out that he'd had to fight all the Columbia people all through the sessions, the staff and the executives. He said the album was the first by an outside producer that Columbia allowed and that the record may not have been going smoothly for Columbia, but it was for Janis Joplin. 
John Carpenter, music editor of the Los Angeles Free Press and a former partner of Chet Helms, who you'll recall is credited for introducing Janice to Big Brother, said he saw Janice last on September 28th at the Troubadour on Sunset Strip. Quote, she talked about her old man. She said she had a lover now and she seemed cheerful, but there was something. She had a red dress on and I asked her what she was doing there. She said, I got this new dress and I just wanted to look good. She was alone. She had a few drinks, and there were a lot of people around us. It was just audition night, you know, new young bands, nobody big. Toward the end of the night, she kind of announced that she was leaving. Nobody said anything or offered to take her. Finally, I called her a cab, and she went home alone. Which I get that, though. I do that every once in a while. If I get my hair did or I feel like I look particularly cute, sometimes I just want to go out, even if it's just by myself. I don't. Well, you'd never go anywhere. I don't. <laughs> you prefer not to go out, ever. Nah, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> the last person to see Janice alive was Haggy, the Landmarks manager. He told police he spoke to her briefly at 1 a.m. Sunday morning and that she appeared cheerful. Janice had finished a recording session about 11 p.m. Saturday night and went with members of her band to Barney's Beanery. John Cook said Janice had had a few drinks and then drove her organ player back to the motel, said goodnight, and went to bed, as I mentioned previously. Myra Friedman, again, I mean, you, you hear Myra's name a ton throughout this story. She was a press representative for Janice. She was a biographer. Later on, she wrote a biography. She's also a close friend of Janice. Said the image she sometimes cultivated and sometimes had forced on her was not accurate. To quote, I think Janice knew that wasn't really where she was at. Maybe a part of her believed that, but I think the most honest part didn't. She wasn't a conservative girl. That's ridiculous. But she had a lot of needs that were just like everyone else's. She was accepting of a lot of different kinds of people. Recently, I met her at the Chelsea Hotel. She always stayed there when she was in New York, and she had been reading a book. I saw it. She told me she read a lot. But don't tell anybody. By the way, Friedman does include what the name of the book was that she was reading. It was Look Homeward Angel by Thomas Wolfe, if anybody was curious about that. Sam Gordon, who ran Janice's publishing firm, recalled going to a pub at 55th Street near Park Avenue in New York recently with her for a drink. Quote, we were rapping about what we wanted from life, he said. I said I wished I was on the road again instead of in the comfortable suburban life I've been living for a while now. She said, oh, I'll take that. I asked if that was what she really wanted, and she said, yeah, that's what I really want. But Gordon remembers the first song he ever sent to her. It was a Jesse Winchester tune called Quiet About It. It was religious in a way. Janice said she couldn't use it. Quote, I can't talk to my God quietly. I love that quote, too. I love it. Kip Cohen, manager of the Fillmore East, remarked, she had a tremendous amount of assurance when she got it all together on stage. But off stage, privately, she seemed to be very frightened, very timid, and very naive about a lot of things. Once you become a public figure, you relinquish your privacy, and the toll is there. The audience certainly demands an enormous amount from a performer, much more than they deserve, and Janice would give everything. And after you give everything, what do you do when the audience wants more? That shows them to be the overfed, spoiled, suburban brats that most of them are. And I'm more angry today over Janice's death because of that. 
The official cause of death was a heroin overdose, possibly compounded by alcohol. Cook believes Joplin had been given heroin that was much more potent than normal, as several of her dealer's other customers also overdosed that week. Her death was ruled accidental. This breaks my heart. The morning after her death, a telegram from David Niehaus, remember her ex from earlier that year from when she was in Brazil, was found at the Landmark Hotel that read, Love you, Mama, more than you know. Friends still wonder if things would have turned out differently if she'd received it. On October 7th, Joplin was cremated per her wishes at Pierce Brothers Westwood Village Memorial Park and Mortuary in Los Angeles, California. Which, as a side note, supposedly the family originally wanted to take her body back to Texas for a proper burial, but ultimately honored her wishes. A very private service was held for the immediate members of her family at an undisclosed location. John Cook noted that Janice's closest friends gathered at the Landmark Motor Inn and did not attend the service. As Cook said, we're all here together. One of Janice's musicians looked at the bright facade of the motel, a starburst orange color, and squinted, saying, it's a hell of a place to die. Joplin's ashes were scattered from a plane into the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Marin County. In her last will and testament, signed just two days before her death, she left over $1,500 to her friends for a party. The tickets were printed with, quote, the drinks are on pearl. Mm. Joplin's death in October 1970 at age 27 stunned her fans and shocked the music world, especially when it coupled with the death just 16 days earlier of rock icon Jimi Hendrix, also age 27. This would later cause some people to attribute significance to the death of musicians at the age of 27 as celebrated by the notional 27 Club. And that is going to be a short set that we are going to be doing in October for our October Spooky Spooky Month. On the day after Janice died, the offices of Columbia in New York looked pretty much the way they do on any ordinary day, except that a fresh batch of her last album, I Got Them Old Cosmic Blues Again, Mama, had arrived from the Grossman office. Columbia had run out of records. The posthumous Pearl, 1971, became the biggest selling album of her career and featured her biggest hit single, a cover of Chris Christopherson and Fred Foster's Me and Bobby McGee, which I'll touch on in a second. Which, if you'll, And if you'll remember, Christopherson had been Janice's lover, or Joplin's lover, in the spring of 1970. The opening track, Move Over, was written by Joplin, reflecting the way that she felt men treated women in relationships. Also included was a social commentary of Mercedes-Benz, presented in an a cappella arrangement. The track on the album features the first and only take that Joplin recorded. A cover of Nick Gravenite's Buried Alive in the Blues, to which Joplin had been scheduled to add her vocals on the next to add her vocals on the day she was found dead was included as an instrumental. Which I want to jump back just a second and talk about me and Bobby McGee. This was her only like hit single whatever qualifies that but it did was the only one that reached number one on the charts during its posthumous release so a little bit of history on that song 
because if you've ever been to one of my shows or know me at all as a musician, this song is very important to me as an artist. Fred Foster pitched the title Me and Bobby McKee to Christofferson, who heard it, who misheard it as McGee, and that's what stuck. Christofferson had two major influences while writing the song. The rhythm of Mickey Newberry's Why You Been Gone So Long influenced the meter, and a Fellini film, La Strada, influenced the story, particularly the feeling at the end of the film, with details changed to focus on a rich Americana-laden landscape. Oh, God, I hate that word so much. What, Americana? Yes. Why? I just do. Well, it's a whole thing, man. It's like a whole genre of stuff. It's like when you buy a dresser and it's got chipped paint on it, but it's supposed to look that way. (laughs) I like it. All right. The song's namesake was a woman named Barbara Bobby McKee. A secretary at an office Foster would visit on Nashville's Music Row. I think it's safe to say he had a little crush on her. Janice was not the first singer to record the song. Roger Miller, Gordon Lightfoot, and Kenny Rogers and the First Edition all recorded versions before Joplin. Christofferson didn't hear Janice's version until right after her passing late in 1970. Paul Rothschild, her producer, asked me to stop by his office and listen to this thing she had cut. Afterwards, I walked all over L.A., just in tears. I couldn't listen to the song without really breaking up, Christofferson said. He said later he had to listen to it until he was so sick of it, it wouldn't make him bust out all over again. When he sings it to this day, he always thinks of Joplin. Which, by the way, he does still sing this song. And I was really excited that I saw him perform it at the Minnesota State Fair with, well, not with, but at the Merle Haggard concert. (laughs) He was was there. It was Merle Haggard and Chris Christopherson. And my mom won tickets on the radio and I got to go see them. And he did an awesome job. In the years after Joplin's death, a multitude of other artists would record the song, including Loretta Lynn, The Grateful Dead, Olivia Newton-John, and Dolly Parton. Also, two of Christofferson's Highwaymen bandmates, Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash, would record the song. Music historian Tom Moon wrote that Joplin had a devastatingly original voice. Music columnist John Perales of the New York Times wrote that Joplin as an artist was overpowering and deeply vulnerable. And author Megan Terry said that Joplin was the female version of Elvis Presley in her ability to captivate an audience, all of which I thoroughly agree with. A book about Joplin by her publicist Myra Friedman titled Buried Alive, the Biography of Janis Joplin was released in 1973 and excerpted in many newspapers as you can tell from my own research, because <laughs> I mentioned it a lot. At the same time, Peggy Caserta's memoir, Going Down with Janice, released in 1974, attracted a lot of attention with its provocative title referring to her performing oral sex with Joplin while they were high on heroin. Joplin's bandmate Sam Andrew would later describe Caserta as halfway between a groupie and a friend. According to a statement in 
the early 1990s by a close friend of Caserta and Joplin's. Caserta's book angered the Los Angeles heroin dealer she described in detail, including the make and model of his car for her book. According to Ellis Amburn, in 1973, a car full of dope dealers visited a Los Angeles lesbian bar Caserta had been frequenting since Joplin was alive. Amburn quoted Caserta's friend Kim Chappell, who was in the alley behind the bar, I was stabbed because when Peggy's book came out, her dealer, the same one who'd given Janice her last fix, didn't like it that he was referred to and was out to get Peggy. He couldn't find her, so he went for her lover. When they realized who I was, they felt that my death would also hit Peggy, and so they stabbed me. Despite being stabbed three times in the chest, puncturing both lungs, Chapel eventually recovered. Which, dang... According to biographers, Caserta was one of many friends of Joplin's who did not become clean and sober until a very long time after the singer's death, while others died from overdoses. Although Big Brother guitarist James Gurley's wife, who was Joplin's close friend, died of a heroin overdose in 1969, he did not become clean and sober until 1984. Caserta survived a near-fatal OD in December 1995, wrote Alice Eccles. On January 13, 2000, Caserta appeared on camera for a segment about Joplin on 2020. Joplin, along with Grace Slick of Jefferson Airplane, opened opportunities in the rock music business for future female singers. The Mamas and the Papas song Pearl in 1971 from their People Like Us album was a tribute. Likewise, Leonard Cohen's song Chelsea Hotel No. 2 in 1974 is about Joplin and lyricist Robert Hunter has commented that Jerry Garcia's bird song from his first solo album, Garcia, in 1972, is also about Joplin and the end of her suffering through death. Mimi Farina's composition, In the Quiet Morning, most famously covered by Joan Baez on her Come from the Shadows album, was a tribute to Joplin. Another song by Baez, Children of the 80s, mentioned her as well. A Serge Gainsbourg penned French language song by English singer Jane Birkin, a Fond des Sissies, references Joplin alongside other disappeared idols such as Jimi Hendrix, Brian Jones, and Mark Bolin. When Joplin was alive, Country Joe McDonald released a song called Janice on his band's album I Feel Like I'm Fixin' to Die in 1976. You'll remember they also were an item at one point. At the 1976 Montreux Jazz Festival, Nina Simone, whom Joplin admired greatly, commented on Joplin and referred to the documentary Janice that was released in 1975 and was apparently screened at that festival. Quote, you know, I made 35 albums. They bootlegged 70. Oh, everybody took a chunk of me. And yesterday I went to see Janice Joplin's film here. And what distressed me the most, and I started to write a song about it, but I decided you weren't worthy because I figured that most of you are here for the festival. Anyway, the point is it pained me to see how hard she worked because she got hooked into a thing and it wasn't on drugs. She got hooked into a feeling and she played to corpses, which dang Nina, the film, the Rose from 1979, you know, I'm sure you know this movie, the Rose, Bette Midler, Uh uh-huh, is based loosely on Joplin's life. Originally planned to be titled Pearl, Joplin's nickname, and the title of her last album, 
as we mentioned. The film was fictionalized after her family declined to allow the producers the rights to her story. Bette Midler earned a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance in the film. In 1988, on what would have been Joplin's 45th birthday, the Janis Joplin Memorial with an original gold multi-image sculpture of Joplin by Douglas Clark was dedicated during a ceremony in Port Arthur, Texas. In 1992, the first major biography of Joplin in two decades, Love Janice, authored by her younger sister, Laura Joplin, was published. In an interview, Laura stated that Joplin enjoyed being on the Dick Cavett show, that Joplin, while growing up in Texas, had difficulties with some people at school, but not the entire school, and that Joplin was really enthusiastic after performing at Woodstock in 1969. In 1995, Joplin was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and in 2005, she received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. In the late 1990s, the musical play Love, Janice, created and directed by Randall Myler, with input from Janice's younger sister, Laura, and Big Brother guitarist Sam Andrew, with an aim to take it to off-Broadway. Opening in the summer of 2001 and scheduled for only a few weeks of performances, the show won acclaim, Packed Houses, and was held over several times. In November 2009, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum honored her as part of its annual American Music Masters series. Among the artifacts at the museum exhibition are Joplin's scarf and necklaces, her 1965 Porsche 356, her psychedelically painted 1965 Porsche 356 Cabriolet, and a sheet of LSD blotting paper designed by Robert Crumb, designer of the Cheap Thrills cover, which... I love that a piece of LSD blotting paper is included in her exhibition. Also in 2009, Joplin was the honoree at the Rock Hall's American Music Master Concert and Lecture Series. Y'all, shorten these names. It is hard to say them. In 2013, Washington's Arena Stage featured a production of A Night with Janis Joplin starring Mary Bridget Davies. In it, Joplin puts on a concert for the audience while telling stories of her past inspirations, including Odetta, Aretha Franklin, and others. It went on tour in 2016. On November 4th, 2013, Joplin was awarded with the 2510th star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for her contributions to the music industry. Her star is located at 6752 Hollywood Boulevard in front of Musicians Institute. Appropriate location. On August 8th, 2014, the U.S. Postal Service revealed a commemorative stamp honoring Janis Joplin as part of its Music Icons Forever stamp series during a first day of issue ceremony at the Outside Lands Music Festival at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. And on December 15th, 2015, Amy J. Berg released her biographical documentary film, Janice, Little Girl Blue, narrated by Cat Power. It was a New York Times critic's pick. And in case you were wondering what kind of influence Janice Joplin has, like, seriously, I found, I mean, we all know her influence, but I did find a couple of really great quotes that I wanted to share from people that were influenced and inspired by her. Joplin had a profound influence on many singers. For example, Florence Welch of Florence and the Machine spoke of Joplin's impact in an interview for Why Music Matters that appeared in a commercial against piracy. I learned about Janice from an anthology of female blues singers. Janice was a fascinating character who bridged the gap between psychedelic blues and soul scenes. She was soul vulnerable, 
self-conscious, and full of suffering. She tore herself apart, yet on stage she was totally different. She was so unrestrained, so free, so raw, and she wasn't afraid to wail. Her connection with the audience was really important. It seemed to me the suffering and intensity of her performance go hand in hand. There was always a sense of longing, of searching for something. I think she really sums up the idea that soul is about putting your pain into something beautiful. Stevie Nicks considers Joplin one of her idols and has said, You could say that being yelled at by Janis Joplin was one of the great honors of my life. Early in my career, Lindsey Buckingham and I were in a band called Fritz. There were two gigs we played in San Francisco that changed everything for me. One was opening up for Jimi Hendrix, who was completely magical. The other was a time that we opened for Janice at the San Jose Fairgrounds around 1970. It was a hot summer day and things didn't start off well because the entire show was running late. That meant our set was running over. We were on stage and going over pretty well when I turned and saw a furious Janice Joplin on the side of the stage yelling at us. She was screaming something like, what the fuck are you assholes doing? Get the hell off my stage. Actually, she might have been a little cruder than that. But then Janice got up on that stage with her band and this woman who was screaming at me only moments before suddenly became my new hero. Janice Joplin was not what anyone would call a great beauty, but she became beautiful because she made such a powerful and deep emotional connection with the audience. I didn't mind the feathers and the bell-bottom pants either. <laughs> Janice didn't dress like anyone else and she definitely didn't sing like anyone else. Janice put herself out there completely and her voice was not only strong and soulful, it was painfully and beautifully real. She sang in the great tradition of the rhythm and blues singers that were her heroes, but she brought her own dangerous, sexy rock and roll edge to every single song. She gave you a piece of her heart, and that inspired me to find my own voice and my own style. And that was a quote from Stevie Nicks. Pink said about Joplin, she was so inspiring by seeing blues music when it wasn't culturally acceptable for white women and she wore her heart on her sleeve. She was so witty and charming and intelligent, but she also battled an ugly duckling syndrome. I would love to play her in a movie. In a tribute performance on her Try This tour, Pink called Joplin a woman who inspired me when everyone else didn't. And this quote I feel from the biography section of JaniceJoplin.com sums her up perfectly. That voice, high, husky, earthy, explosive, remains among the most distinctive and galvanizing in pop history. But Janice Joplin didn't merely possess a great instrument. She threw herself into every syllable, testifying from the very core of her being. I wanted to include that. It was... Again, it's from the biography section of her own website. And I just thought it was perfectly appropriate. And because I like to leave things on a fun note, of course, I have fun facts for you. Woot woot. She was a third degree black belt in Kempo Karate. I don't know what that kind of karate is. I don't know. It's karate and she was a third degree black belt. She was arrested in 1969 for indecent and vulgar language towards police officers while performing in Tampa, Florida. She was allowed to finish performing, 
before being arrested, and the charges were later dropped. The judge ruled she was simply exercising her right to free speech. Yes. Yes. She did not think music should be about making money and was uncomfortable being called a star. In a, There's like a little gif or a clip of her in a, in a TV interview saying, just call me a singer. I, I can kind of see that and I kind of dig it. I want to say it was on the Dick Cavett show, but I can't remember. And this one, this is one that I really loved. She once smashed a bottle of Southern Comfort over Jim Morrison's head. <laughs> she threw it. They had been hanging out. And when she left, she threw it out of, out of a car window and wailed him, smack in the head, knocking him unconscious. According to his biography, the next day in rehearsal, Jim exclaimed, What a great woman. She's terrific. <laughs> and he asked Rothschild for her phone number, but she had no intention of getting together with him again. That's awesome. So, like, but, but like, from all accounts, he was a little bit in lo- in um. awe and in love with her for her wild and violent spirit. <laughs> that is incredible. And then this one is my favorite. So, the Cheap Thrills album with Big Brother and the Holding Company was originally to be titled Sex, Dope, and Cheap Thrills. But Columbia said no, because <laughs> they were not okay with the first two-thirds of it. But they thought Cheap Thrills they could get away with. I also wanted to make a mention of a short, of a short article slash interview that I ran across. I wanted to share with you. I didn't find a good spot to incorporate it into the story, but I thought it was a good read and thought some of you may enjoy it. Uh, the article is called Backstage with Janice Joplin, Doubts, Drugs, and Compassion on NPR.org. And while it's more about Joplin's road manager, John Bjorn Cook, it also provides some insights into the icon and the person that she was behind the persona. It was written in conjunction with the release of his biography about her called On the Road with Janis Joplin that was released in 2014. And that's all I got, folks. That's the life and everything I could have the time to dig up on her. I could probably keep going and (laughs) have a lot of fun, but uh, no. (laughs) Very eloquent. So I I thought that was a great episode. I thought it was really cool. Um, I like. I love your Joan Collins voice right now. (laughs) Little kids. That's my line. We're learning about Janis Joplin today. Okay. So I I I really enjoyed like learning all the stuff about Janis because literally I only knew her music and that she died at twenty seven. So like that was all brand new stuff for me. So. Very cool to learn all that stuff. Some of it was new to me, too, honestly. I like that. <laughs> I like it because, you know, we get to learn a lot of stuff. Um, but great episode. Thank you for that. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, I also hope you, en- to, I hope you enjoy my sexy voice for the next couple of minutes. Cause... I just want to throw this out here, out there, too, because collectively the recording on these, like... I don't know what you ended up cutting the first part down to yet. I haven't had a chance to listen to it. But, like an uh, hour 20. Yeah. So 
We cut it down. You cut it down to like an hour 20 with tonight's recording. We're looking at about six hours of actual recorded content. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So I'm sorry because. Don't be uh, sorry because I'm about to do the same thing it. to him next month. Oh, God, help me. Tracy's going to hate me because I have like three books, an audio book, eight documentaries, oh a God. feature film. And I at least didn't listen or read. Hang all on, of hang mine. on. Let me finish my sentence. <laughs> Wait, there's more? Yes. Oh, God. Yes. Uh, a feature film and then several anecdotic, uh, anecdotal websites that I pulled my research, which I haven't even like dedicated to paper yet. But like legit, one of the books that I'm reading from goes into his history so deep that it like the first chapter is about how AIDS was created. Okay, that's too much. <laughs> like... Realistically, folks. I mean, I studied. I, mean, I studied. I studied a lot for this episode coming well, up. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like that's too much because realistically, I had a lot of sources I could have gone to, but I had to edit myself down. I'm gonna edit it down. It's not that. It's just there. I pull. I have so much to pull from, and too I'm, much. And if you guys haven't figured out who our subject is for the next episode. I bet you can guess. I'll bet you can guess. I'm not going to say who it is because, but his birthday is coming up. If you've been listening at all, take a wild guess (laughs) as to who LD could possibly be this obsessed with. Doing a three-part episode on this person. I'm already telling you guys it's going to be three parts. I'm hoping that it's going to be fun and entertaining. Like I said, in October, we're going to kind of take a break because we're going to be in about 35 to 40 episodes, I think, in and so we're just going to take a break in October and have fun. And it's going to be less about one single person, but a lot of different stuff. And so I hope you guys are kind of looking forward to it because October is going to be really cool. So I'm super excited about that. <laughs> um, but uh, before I give out our social stuff, I actually already posted this on our Facebook page. But um, like I was telling you guys a couple weeks ago, I do a charity scavenger hunt every year. And their goal is to make fun changes in the world and make the world a better place while getting out your, you know, getting outside of your comfort zone and doing things that are really creative, but trying to actually make an impact socially. And it's a wonderful thing. I, I suggest everyone do it. It's called GISH. It's the greatest international scavenger hunt. And it's run by Misha Collins of Supernatural and the GISH Gnomes. And it's one of the greatest experiences in my life. It's the craziest week you'll ever have. But during that, we were actually tasked to make a change socially. And my friend, Olivia, who's on my team, uh, is a beautiful person. And she started a petition through change.org to get the name of Mulatto Mountain in North Carolina changed to Nina Simone and basically her thing was to combat the prevalent and continued racism in the U.S. uh, by renaming places with derogative titles for those who have honored our country. And the term mulatto expresses that view that those of mixed races are inferior and subhuman. And the beautiful summit of Mulatto Mountain in North Carolina should be renamed 
after someone who can proudly represent the beauty and the culture of North Carolina. And Nina Simone was an amazing singer and a musician and a civil rights activist from North Carolina. And she deserves her place in history. So if you guys could please go over to change.org, you can check us out on, uh, you can check the link out on our Facebook page and sign the petition. It only takes a, a couple minutes to do. And they're actually in the North Carolina government right now, actually putting it on their quarterly review. And that's a huge thing. So if you guys could please go sign that petition, it would make a massive difference. And it would mean a lot to, you know, me, my team, and the team here at Rock and Roll Heaven. And by the team at Rock and Roll Heaven, I mean me and TJ. Yeah. So sorry for having to put up with my raspy voice. but oh, I read those. Okay, can you do it as fast as me? Yes. Okay. do it faster because there's two of them that are the same that we can combine. Ha! Huh. Yeah, you say that, but they're not on the page oh, like that. <laughs> oh, give it to me. Why? Stop it. Oh, why <laughs> are they? Well, I'm trying to figure out why they're not like that and how I Because can that's how them. I wrote them. That's how I looked mm-hmm. them up. Okay. So if you're interested in helping out the show, you can check us out on patreon.com uh, backslash rock and roll heaven um, if you care to donate to the show. You can find us on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. You can find us on Facebook where the petition is and all the fun pictures and stuff that we post is up there. And that's at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Still not saying the website name. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. Please do email us. We love it. We have a lot of fun uh, interacting with you guys. And that is it for this week's episode. Tune in next week where. I see how far I can push TJ's patience before she actually attempts to strangle me. She may end up doing half of these alone. (laughs) I think you're going to have a good time with it. It's a really interesting story. So um, thank you so much for checking us out, guys. Uh, Keep rocking in the free world. Tracy. Yeah. Do you have a lozenge? Do I have a what? A lozenge? Some a cough. No cough. Lush. I have none of those things. <laughs> whatever they are. All right. Guess it's off to CBS. All right. Bye. Bye. I like to do a song of great social and political import. It goes like this. Oh Lord, won't you buy me? A Mercedes Benz. My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing four dollars is trying to find me. I wait for delivery each day until three. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? I'm counting on you, Lord. Please don't let me down. Prove that you love me. And by the next round, oh Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? Everybody, oh Lord, 
Won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? That's it. <laughs> It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.